We are the post-apocalyptic church. And what we mean by that is, an apocalypse is not a disaster, but an apocalypse is a revelation. It's a revealing of truth, revealing the plan of the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. And by saying we're the post-apocalyptic church, we are the church. We are the people who live this side of God's revelation of what He has been doing, what He is doing, and what He's going to do. You know, a good current terminology for revelation, and it's called the revelation. Sometimes it's called revelations, okay? Don't, don't go there, all right? Don't do that. That's, that's pretty low. It's not revelations. There's one revelation. It's called the apocalypse of St. John, if you want to get technical. I think a good term for it would be spoilers, Okay, Because it's the spoiler, the spoiler of God, where he says, look, I'm, I'm going to give away the ending. But to give away the ending, you have to understand how it all begins. You have to get the whole story. And, and that's what we have when John goes through that open door in heaven. We are the post-apocalyptic church, which, which means that we live on this side of that spoiler. We live on this side, this side of that revelation. But it all begins by getting a vision of what's going on in the throne room of God. We talk about going before the throne of God. We talk about approaching the throne of God. What do we usually mean by that? We mean worship. We mean assembling on Sunday morning. And that's fine. I think that's a good phrase to describe what we ought to be doing. I think that the more we understand what the throne room of God is like, the more it may shape our heart and our spirit in worship. Sometimes we talk about approaching the throne of God as if it's prayer. And that's very appropriate because there are prayers brought before the one in heaven. But the throne room of God is is the place where the holiness and the glory of God is not veiled, it's not hidden, it's not removed from the people the way it would have been on Mount Sinai in the days of Israel, uh, where there would have been some distance between them. The throne room of God is, is the place where the one who rules over all time and space is glorified and recognized as the ruler. Now, Sometimes we want to go into the throne room of God and we want to take our tape measures. Sometimes we want to get in there and as if it's HGTV and we want to find out what God has done with the Jasper and Carnelian. And, you know, now is that wormwood or gopher word you use back there, Yahweh? And, you know, we want to find out how he's decorating things. That's not what this description in Revelation 4 and 5 is all about. We're being invited to come up here because we're being drawn into a drama. We're being drawn into a story that is unfolding. And the throne room of God is defined by the one who is there. Not by the throne, not by the space, not by the attendants who have shown up, not by the decoration of the materials. It's defined by the one who is there. And his glory is what shapes this throne room. John is, and I'll tell you this about, you know, one thing, go back a few months if you were here, drawing pictures of judges is one thing. Drawing pictures of Samson, knocking people around with a jawbone, that's great. That's easy in some sense because you just depict a scene. But words and images alike fall short 
to describe. Even working on this PowerPoint this week, I want to tell you, you, you have an image and you say, and yet, that's only part of it. It's like asking you, know, asking you to point to the fifth dimension. You can't, how do you do that? You cannot fathom that spatial arrangement. The throne room of God is just such a strange place. But John's using what he knows to describe the impact of it. He's using terms and images that would be known so that you can get a sense of what it feels like to be there. He says that before the throne of God, there is a gleaming brilliance like gemstones. John and his people, they would have understood that. You can understand that. Someone's given a ring, an engagement ring. You notice it. You know, when you buy the, when you buy the ring, you notice the, the light gleaming through it. There's a brilliance there in the throne room of God. And it represents glory and holiness and justice and and mercy. He's saying that those qualities of God shine out of the one who is on the throne the same way that light will shine out of a gem. Before the throne of God, there are, you know, this reminds the hearers, it should remind us if we know our Old Testament, of God appearing to his people on Mount Sinai. And by the way, that picture is not photoshopped that you see right there. Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever been close to a volcano, I never have been, not sure I'm going to be, but there will be lightning that will come out of a volcano along with lava. Anyone who had ever seen that would think, okay, this has got to be the power of God in nature. You know, going and seeing the oceans, one thing, go check that out sometime. But the thunder, the lightning, the sea of crystal glass, it reminds them of God on Mount Sinai. Here, They're even closer than Mount Sinai to the glory of God before the throne of God. So John is building a set of images for us. There's brilliance. The quality of God, his qualities like justice and mercy and holiness, they're shining forth. There's power. There's thunder. There's lightning. There's everything that was ever right about the covenant beginning at Mount Sinai. And then before the throne, there are people there who are worshiping. There are 24 elders They are rulers with wisdom. They're rulers who have an honor of their own. They have crowns, okay? And they are bowing down. Now, we've already told you, we've already revealed this, that in the fall we want to select elders. We we need to be praying now that God gives us wisdom and that he gives us a, a spirit of unity and a spirit of insight so that we can look into this church body and see who are those men who can be shepherds for us? Have we ever thought to look at Revelation and the description of the 24 elders? Or do we just say, no, 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 that, that can't be church elders. Well, maybe it's not exactly the same thing. But I will tell you there is one characteristic for a shepherd in God's church that you see here that we ought to see. That anyone who serves in the name of Christ, any leader, a shepherd, a minister, a deacon, anyone, even those who do not have titles... Anyone, no matter what their authority on earth may be, if they're going to serve Christ, they should be willing to bow down and put all of their authority before the one on the throne. I'm very thankful that our nine shepherds, they have that spirit. None of them would be so, so 
ridiculous as to claim that they somehow have an authority that God needs. But like these 24 rulers, these highest rulers, they are willing to bow down and give their authority, to surrender their authority. And that is one of the things that ought to lead the flock. God's shepherds over his flock ought to be showing the rest of us how to submit to the one on the throne. John has painted this picture then. He's given us this picture of these, of these 24 representing all of God's people throughout all of time. And they, despite their royal regal authority, know to bow down before the one on the throne. That he's worthy of their submission just as others submit to them. And then there are those four living creatures. Ezekiel had a vision of four living creatures. When God's chariot landed on earth and those four living creatures that attend to God, they, they go out in four directions, meaning they go out all over the earth. And the whole idea that they have eyes everywhere means that they can see everything. They have an early detection system. They have a spy satellite network that nothing in our technology can compare to. They have six wings, which means they can move quickly at God's command. What is a cherubim? Well, it's not a fat little baby, I'll tell you that, okay? I don't know how we got to a fat little baby when these things are described as these incredible creatures with six wings and eyes and changing faces that look in all directions of the earth. If the wheel within a wheel in Ezekiel is God's car, then the cherubim are the secret service that attend to God's chariot. In fact, they're God's special forces, okay? This is his delta squadron that goes out whenever he says it. And yet they, with all of their power, are submitting themselves to the glory of the one on the throne. They look at the one on the throne and say, now I don't know about you, but I think anybody on earth would be wise to be afraid of a cherubim, right? Or the cherubim, it's plural, okay? But uh, you, you, would be, you would be wise to fear them. The cherubim fear the one on the throne. The cherubim say, that's the one that we will not mess with, but we will obey him. We're getting this image now. Thank you from John. We're getting this image of how glorious and how powerful and how majestic it is. And then you zoom in. The one sitting on the throne, he has a scroll in his hand. It's got royal seals on it, which means this is his edict. This is what he wants done. But it's a mission that the cherubim cannot accomplish. It's a mission that the 24 rulers, the men of wisdom and honor, cannot accomplish. But they've got to find someone. Because if someone can do this will of God that he has in this scroll, then God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, it would be a wonderful thing. John is waiting at this point. He's saying, this is the moment. This is the moment when what's written on that scroll, God's will is going to get carried out. But you've got to find somebody who's worthy of unlocking those seals. You've got to find somebody who is worthy of the kind of clearance that they can unlock those seven passwords to get to that scroll. But who? If it's not the 24 rulers, if it's not the four cherubim, who? Who's worthy to carry out God's will on earth as it's done in heaven? And when it seems like we're not going to move the story along any further, John starts to weep. 
he gets sad because he says, this is why the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Let's just pause here for a second. We think, well, we know what's coming. But wait, can you see what John is feeling? Can you see what he's owning for all of the people that he, he writes on their behalf? He's saying, what if no one is worthy? What if all this time you've got heaven and that glory of God and he's got that will that he wants to enact, but it is sealed seven times over and no one's worthy of it. And John is saying, maybe this is the reason why things are messed up on earth. Maybe this is the reason why things don't get done on earth, because we can't find someone who can carry out God's plan. And John is weeping that that won't happen. Because if it did, he knows it would be good. If it could be carried out, then everything would be the way it's supposed to be. All the brokenness, all the sin on earth, all the things that cause people to suffer, it would all be undone. It would be settled. Earth would be ordered just like heaven is what if no one's worthy and just as he's crying there's a word of comfort that says don't weep look here comes the hero here comes the one we've been waiting for here comes the one who's worthy it's the lion of the tribe of judah the root of david he has triumphed he will be god's agent on earth and john turns around to see what he hopes is the most awesome, fantastic lion of the tribe of Judah, burning on fire, you know, all of that. But instead of a lion, he sees a lamb. What just happened there? Then I saw a lamb. Not only a lamb, but a lamb looking like it had been slain. Now, If you don't feel just a little bit of disappointment, maybe you're not hearing this correctly. I mean, we want the lion. The lion can do this. The lion can take on anybody. But a lamb that has been killed? How, How is that going to be the worthy one who can carry out God's will? Why do we get a lamb and not a lion? And why then is that lamb worthy? Well, this is the revelation from the throne room of God. And this is where you and I get our expectations undone. We need to stop and think, why is the lamb worthy? Because if we know why the lamb, who looks like he had been slain, is worthy, then we'll understand what it is that God is needing, what God is needing in one who will accomplish his will. The Lamb is worthy to carry out the mission of God. And the Lamb is Christ, okay? And if we are the followers of Christ, then, then our worthiness... It, it, and by the way, we don't achieve a worthiness of our own. Let me say that right now. We, we in no way become worthy of salvation. Salvation's a gift. I need to assert that because sometimes it can be easy for us to get confused and think that somehow we have to prove ourselves worthy. Because the Lamb proved himself worthy the will of God is carried out which means salvation for those who follow the lamb but when you follow the lamb you're going to follow in his footsteps we're not talking about salvation at this point we're talking about discipleship okay and I want to be clear that we all understand what discipleship is discipleship means learning to live like the lamb 
The image of the lamb who was slain is an image of discipleship. That that's what God finds worthy. And and this is, I think, something that, that maybe we don't impress upon one another enough. How important discipleship is. Just this week, interesting insight. Just this week, I got a call from, a, um, from an elder in a church in another state. I don't know him. W- wasn't familiar with his church. But he said, I was looking on the website for information about discipleship. And I was having a hard time finding it, but it came up on your church's website. I want to know what you're thinking and teaching and doing when it comes to discipleship. I was, I was a bit surprised. Uh, I didn't know that we're emphasizing it more than others, and it really doesn't matter what others are doing. <clears throat> I told him it might have something to do with that banner or this statement that we put on our bulletins all the time about making disciples for Jesus. And not only are we making disciples, but we're striving to be disciples, which means if we're striving to be disciples of Jesus, we're striving to be disciples of the Lamb who was slain. But who lives again and is worthy to carry out the mission of God. Three reasons why, and this is for our benefit, for our discipleship, three reasons why the lamb is worthy. First of all, the lamb does not carry out God's will by violence. It's too easy to accomplish the will of the one who rules from heaven by violence. That's the simple way to get things done. We live in a world that labors under the illusion of redemptive violence. What that means is, if you strike us, we're going to strike you, but twice as hard, and you'll get the lesson. Now, I suppose that in some areas of the world, maybe that's the best you can hope for. But from the throne room of heaven, God has a better way. And we should be glad. Because if we offend the one in heaven and he decides, you've offended me, you've struck against me, now I'm going to strike back against you. Friends, that's not a war we want to find ourselves in, okay? So thank God that the lamb has a different way than violence. The Old Testament allowed for an eye for an eye, okay? And 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 by the way, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was a limitation on retribution, because before that, you know, and sometimes we, we look at that as permission. Hey, he knocked my tooth out, I'm going to get a tooth too. The old way of doing things was, you knocked my tooth out, I'm going to kill you, your family, and I'm going to shoot all your dogs and cats and burn your house down. Why? Because they knocked my tooth out. And so that, that, the, the eye for an eye rule was a, just a, a kind of a simple way of creating retribution, or, or stopping retribution. But the lamb doesn't choose to enact God's will that way. Cain killed his brother in an argument that came out of worship, by the way. And God had to put some limitation on this. Because if Cain kills Abel, others would kill Cain, and it would go so out of control. God's trying to reset that. He's trying to put all of that back and reestablish the peace. The lamb that was slain shows us that the kingdom way is to go beyond and to surpass that rule of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. That there is something more powerful than having might, power, and violence. Closely related to this, number two, is that the lamb is worthy 
because he does not have to be the toughest guy on the block. This is why we get a lamb and not a lion. This is why the lamb is the more appropriate image than the lion. Sometimes living in a world where we have this idea that that more violence is going to secure us, that more violence is going to protect us, that more violence is going to set everything right, which if you follow the teaching of Jesus, he says those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Okay. If, If you look instead at that being what makes things better, the myth that you have to be the toughest guy on the block, there is another way, the way of the Lamb. Instead, you have one who is so obedient to God's will that he will die before he defies God's will. He will be killed before he will deviate from God's will. That's a kind of integrity that no threat of violence can ever overcome. If you have someone who's willing to die rather than violate God's will, you can unleash all the threat and all the violence in the world, and it won't change. It won't overcome that power. But we've got to get over this myth that you can always have the toughest guy on the block, and yet it's embedded in our culture. Part of it is the way that we misunderstand certain important wisdom that's been around for a long time. Ever, and and, and we're, we're misunderstanding, for example, the teachings of, of the great prophet and teacher Jim Croce. All right? Since 1972, we have, Jim Croce's song has been trying to teach us certain things. I mean, you've heard of the story of Big Jim Walker. He was the king of 42nd Street. And everyone who knew Jim Walker would sing about him. They would say, look, there's some things you don't do. You don't tug on Superman's cape. You do not spit in the wind. You do not pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger, and you don't mess around with Jim. Right, and and we stop there. Do you ever notice what the song is about? There's one person who does mess with Jim, William McCoy, a boy from South Alabama. Mm-hmm. William McCoy shows up, wants his money back. And guess what? He cuts up Jim so bad, there's, there's, there's nothing left of him except the soles of his feet. And then people start singing this song, you don't tug on Superman's cape, you don't spit in the wind, you don't pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger, and you don't mess around with Slim, also known as William McCoy. So look. We all thought that Jim was the, was the biggest, baddest guy around, and it's really, it's really slim. Oh, and if that didn't do it for you, then he gave us a year later, he gave us bad, bad Leroy Brown. <laughs> baddest man in the town and the south side of Chicago. Yeah, thought I was going to say something. And as bad as he was, how bad was he? He was better than old King Kong. How mean was he? He was meaner than a junkyard dog. And yet, when he started flirting with a woman named Doris, her husband, why, he messed him up so bad that um, his face looked like a jigsaw puzzle with some of the pieces gone. So, See, we thought those songs were about big, bad, tough people, the toughest guy on the block. And yet, really, it was about how the toughest guy on the block is always going to get replaced by another tough guy on the block. So if you think that's the way to go, be prepared because there will always be somebody who will be the next king of 42nd Street. The lamb is worthy, not because he's the toughest guy on the block, but because he's the most obedient one in heaven and earth, because he is the one that is so close to the will of the Father that physical strength 
doesn't matter. Words that can be used to injure, to wound, to discredit. Words are sometimes the most violent weapons that we have. We can ruin people's lives with words. But the Lamb will not use His own words. He will trust in the Word of God. They can discredit him, they can shame him, they can put him on a cross. And the cross was such a cruel way to die, not only because it was painful, but because it also shamed you. It was the world's way of saying, this is the mightiest power on earth. If we can nail you to a cross, then we are the toughest guys on the block. And yet the lamb trusted in the word of God that said, he's not the one that's shamed turned all that shame around and said, you are the ones to be shamed. And it was spoken in the mouth of a Roman centurion, a representative of the Roman Empire, who said, this man was the Son of God. What he's saying in that, he's saying, we have done the wrong thing today. He's not the one that's worthy of this shame. We're worthy of the shame. He's worthy of the glory and honor of being the Son of God. We've done the wrong thing, says the Roman centurion. That's the Word of God. That's the power of God's truth. Finally, the Lamb is worthy because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and none of those titles are taken away from Him. The the title of Root of David, none of that is taken away from Him. But He is also the Lamb that was slain, meaning that He still lives. But He doesn't hurt others Rather, he takes the hurt of others upon himself. He suffers with those who are willing to resist the ways of violence. Whether it's the ways of retaliatory violence or whether it's the ways of progressive violence to go after others. Think about what he taught his disciples, his twelve. When they were ready to go to war with him. When Peter pulls up those little rusty knives off the dinner table and he says, look, these may be rusty knives, but I know that if we go after the enemies of God's people with your power by our side, with the heavenly host, we will be unstoppable. And Jesus says, put that down. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. That's not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom, the real power, is obedience. And the Lamb is worthy because He will be obedient to His Father. And He will stand with those who will likewise be obedient no matter what comes. We see in this worthiness a vision of the high authority in heaven. The majesty of the throne room of God. It says that the way of God is ultimately going to be carried out. It is being carried out. It has been carried out. And the old ways... The old ways of earth where we threaten and we secure and we punish and we intimidate and we use words and we use law and we use wealth and we use influence. He said all of that is going to be no match for the one who's on the throne of heaven and the obedient Lamb of God who looks as if he's been slain slain, and yet he lives and now he's worthy to carry out God's will. It will be carried out. That's the mission of the Lamb. And you see that vision unfold where you see a people who can't be shaken, who cannot be made so fearful that they will not disobey. Today in the world, and this has been true in history, and we don't need to to fret 
trying to avoid this, okay? But today in the world, there are people who their allegiance to the Lamb threatens the powers of this world. And if you have a choice to make, stand with the one who is obedient to God. Stand with the Lamb who was slain, the one who was shown to be worthy. Stand with Him. The way of the Lamb, the will of God, is that people from every tribe, every nation, should be one in His kingdom. You know, we, we started our assembly today with those words, the words that the 24 rulers use in praise, the words that the, that the cherubim sing in praise to the one who's gathered around the throne. Now, it's one thing to come together and to say those words, and I thought it was good. I really did. I think that is good for us to say that. But now are we willing to put that into action? Are we willing to, to live by those words? Because when you and I leave here this assembly today, when, it, when it's Monday, the one who's on the throne of heaven, he'll still be on that throne. He'll still be the same with all of his glory and all of his power and justice and mercy and honor. And the Lamb will still be worthy. And you and I will not just sing those words, but we'll carry them out. But it all begins with an invitation to come up here and see I hope that with John's help, something has been revealed to you today about following the one who is on the throne. And that invitation extends to our invitation to follow the Lamb of God, the Lamb who was worthy, the Lamb who was slain. If you follow Him, then you're going to be joining Him in that mission. And if you need some encouragement, because no one ever, again, The invitation is open. No one said it's always going to be easy. And we all need that encouragement. So we set aside this time in whatever way we can encourage you or to give you opportunity to respond to the invitation to follow the Lamb. We want to do that. We'll have shepherds who will be up here. We'll have shepherds that will be in room 100. I would ask the Bulgaria team, those who are going to Bulgaria, go ahead and assemble up here and we'll, uh, we'll be praying for you as we dismiss this morning. Let's stand and let's sing.